Glad you're here. We are about to wrap up our series on the Gospel of Mark. And if you're a guest and you're here for the first time, a special welcome to you. We've been studying the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And we're uh, really toward the end here. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow the text. We're going to, this won't be just an unbroken passage. This is going to be excerpts from the latter part of Mark, trying to develop a theme. And uh, that's in the bulletin, so you can follow it there. Uh, We had the foundations class this weekend. That's the class that we offer to just explain our church to people as best we can in a short amount of time, what we believe and what we're aiming for as a church and what membership involves and that sort of thing. And, and one of the points that I try to say at the beginning of all those classes is that you know, I try to answer the question, why are we starting a new church? And say negatively, we're not starting a new church because we think that old churches are bad. And my example I usually appeal to is that I grew up in one. I grew up in First Presbyterian Church, Jackson, Mississippi. And it, it began about the time the city of Greenville was founded in the 1830s. And, um, you know, I was looking at a hymnal in my office that I borrowed from First Pres Jackson about 30 years ago. And pray for me. But I'm uh, going to get it back anytime now. But I was looking back through it. And, yeah, there's a lot of hymns that we sing in here that I grew up singing. Some that I grew up, that we sang then, we don't, don't uh, sing as much here. But one, uh, one that I remembered as I was working on the sermon was called I Love to Tell the Story. Some of you from a church background might, might know that song, I Love to Tell the Story. And the refrain goes, I love to tell the story, uh, t'will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And um, what we're looking at this morning is the crucifixion of Jesus. And the entire book, like all the Gospels, is, is moving you toward that and, and the resurrection. In fact, if you've been here for a while, you may have noticed this, that in the Gospel of Mark in particular, this word he keeps using over and over is immediately, immediately. Immediately Jesus did this, immediately he did that. And a lot of scholars and commentators have said it's almost as if he's rushing you to the end. What's the end? The end is the crucifixion and the resurrection. So I, I think the best, the best thing I know to say before we look at this text is what I hope is going to happen this morning is what I hope happens any Sunday. I hope this happens in any community group. But particularly this morning, I, I want to tell you the old, old story. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Chapter 15, verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. 
and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we need you to shine your light onto the Word so that we see it rightly. We know that because of what we bring to the table and what we don't understand or what we're blind to, we can take what's right and good and beautiful there and we can twist it to suit our desires or just we can reject it or we can change it in our way of thinking. And We need you to shed light so that we see what's really there. And we need you to shed light into us, into our hearts about how we, of all people, need this. And we ask you to do this in your love, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people think they understand combat because they've read about it. Some people think they understand combat because they have watched movies about it. Some people may think they know about combat because they've played realistic video games in a combat setting. Of course, they don't, right? And case in point, if, if you want to understand what combat really inherently what it is and always has been, is interact with a soldier who has post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and then... You'll have a picture of it. But, you know, again, to really understand it, you would have to go through it. But, but the aftermath, that would give you more window into what it actually is, no matter how much you had read or watched. Uh, I have a, a historic novel. Some of you may have read this. It, uh, I don't know, it came out about 10, 15 years ago called Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. It's about the Battle of Thermopylae, this great last stand of the Spartans who were the just ultra-elite warriors of the, of the Greek world. And uh, it's a historic novel, but Pressfield mines in a lot of historically true information about that culture and their training, and he talked to classical historians and that kind of thing. And there's a scene where after the Spartans fight a battle, and of course, the, you know, no guns, no artillery, this is all hand-to-hand, that uh, they wipe out. They wipe out the enemy. And then when it's over, when they know they've won, uh, they just go weak in the knees and they all have to sit down and and men are shaking. And Pressfield describes that even for this incredible, like, martial culture, warlike culture, just because of what combat is, war is, it was so disturbing that even after doing it for a lifetime, these guys are still disturbed because that's what it is. That's what war is. Um, You know, we're here together... And something that we've already acknowledged together as a, as a room, as a congregation, something that's, that's part of our liturgy, is to say that we sin, right? 
We all sin. And it can feel like because I sin and I know about this thing called sin and I watch other people sin and I know about sin that I really understand it. And at some, in some ways the cross says we really don't. Because the cross is like a billboard. Romans 3 actually says that. The cross of Jesus is like a billboard to make it very clear what our sin is like to God. Because He's the primary audience. And the great audience is not so much, how do I assess my sin? How do I feel about myself and my sin? The great audience is, what does God, who is the center of all reality, who is the center of the universe, not me, what does He think about my sin? What does... dare we say it, what does he feel about my sin? The cross is the definitive answer to those questions. And it's it's at the center of everything that we call biblical Christianity. Uh, I I just, you know, I I, I feel inadequate all the time standing up here, but I really feel it this week because how, how do you verbalize how important this is? How do you do it? So hopefully God will take something and do something great with it. That's what we pray. But let's look at three things. First off, in in these passages in the Gospel of Mark, what did Jesus feel? And that's not a question that we ask a whole lot. But what did Jesus feel? And then what did Jesus ask? And then what did Jesus endure? What did Jesus feel? What did Jesus ask? And then what does Jesus endure? So first off, what did Jesus feel as he's moving toward the things that Mark most wants us to see. All right, look in verse 32. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. He has not been arrested yet. And it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be, now our translation says, greatly distressed and troubled. And I I don't want to make anyone distrustful of of a good English translation. That's a good English translation. But there are nuances that in any language just don't come through in a translation. And this is one of those times. When we read words like greatly distressed and troubled, we might think of somebody, you know, that's just like um, prolonged employment, under duress, uh, a sick relative. They're they're just, they're they're, uh, very stressed. That's not what these terms mean. These are somewhat technical terms about the experience of looking at something that fills you with so much horror that your mind is struggling to process it. There was a Greek term for that, and that's, the, that's what we translate greatly distressed and troubled. If, well, I was going to say if, of course, you remember um, September 11, 2001, and the footage of people in lower Manhattan when they saw the first tower fall and these giant, uh, just this, this wall of smoke and debris and dust, it's like a horror movie, but it's real. You know, It looks like computer-generated imagery, but it's real. And it's just funneling through the alleys and the streets of Manhattan. And people that were far enough away that didn't have to run anymore looking at it, just the looks on their faces of, my brain cannot take in that, The skyline I've always known had these two parallel structures and one of them isn't there anymore. And then after a while, neither of them was there. 
it, it wasn't fear as much as just horror. Horror. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I have horror. And then he says another somewhat technical term, uh, verse, verse 34. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. Now again, we can hear that and think the sadness of you know, a, a, a loss or a setback, even an extreme example of this. But this is a term, it's not just of experiencing sorrow, but of being surrounded by sorrow so that there's no way out. And it's hemming him in. Now, what is this doing to him? And you actually get a picture of this by physically what he does next. What did he do next physically? Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. And that's not just the language of a, of a reverent kneeling. There's a, there's a term for that. But this is falling on the ground. I got an email from... I, I used to be a campus minister before I came to Greenville. And uh, I got a, an email from a former student. And it was really kind. She emailed and said, Thank you just during you know, my time in, in college that you talked about the resurrection and, uh, and the hope of the resurrection because this, uh, her church has home groups like we have community groups here. And... I think it was that Sunday night, uh, these dear friends of theirs that were in their same home group had lost their three-month-old. And so I, you know, I, I emailed her back and said, you know, I'm so sorry and I appreciate you saying that. It means a lot to hear that, that that ministered to you. But then what got me was she emailed back and said, I dry heaved all day Monday. It, it was just, it was so bad. And it wasn't just, mm, that's a setback, that's sad, let's pray for them. It just got in her so much that it physically grabbed her till she just dry heaved. Jesus physically, he doesn't have to adopt that posture. And, and there, the one man free of all affectation and fakeness was Jesus. He's on the ground because he's overwhelmed. And you know, I, I, I think, it's very possible as you're hearing this that you're going, you know, I've read histories of people that went to their death with a lot more ease than that, and you would be right. And there's amazing accounts in church history of men and women and children going into martyrdom with, with great peace and calm, even really outwardly happy and joyful. But something is horrifying him. And we're about to try to identify that. He must be seeing something besides the physical sufferings, which will be unbelievable. But he must be seeing something beyond what other martyrs, other people who've been sent to their deaths, would see or experience. For our purposes, let's say this before we move on to the next point. Plan A for the Messiah is to be horrified. Plan A for the Messiah to save the world is walking into horror, not just fear. Where's the horror coming from? Um, let's look at this, 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 this point about what, what does he ask? He falls on the ground and prays. So what does he pray? Verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, we could think about it this way. Think about the two words, Abba 
and cup. Abba, that, that's, that's that term of, of endearment. Daddy and son. The son would, or daughter would say, Abba. Abba. Abba is what he always has. And what he's always had. When we say always, we don't just mean for the 33 years of his life. We mean from eternity back, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the unbroken love and unity and connection and mutual delight between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has always looked at his Abba. And his Abba has always looked at him and there's been unbroken delight. That's what he has. The cup is what he's facing. And that's the tension. I've always had this. I'm facing this. So he asks what? A couple of things. I want to focus on the word cup. He first says that the hour would pass from him. That that word is all in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John. And Jesus would talk about, my hour hasn't come yet. My hour hasn't come yet. My hour hasn't come yet. And now, as he's fallen on the ground, he's saying, the hour's here. Father, would you take the hour away? But then he talks about this cup, and he says, all things are possible for you. I mean, if there's anybody that gets God, the Father, it's God the Son. And he says, I I know you. I've seen you. No one can stop you. If it's possible, take this cup from me. Now, the question for us is, what is the cup? Because it seems that the cup is what he's horrified of. When you look in Jesus' Bible, what we call the Old Testament, there's two cups. There's the cup that you want, that all of us want. And that's the, it's, it's the one that's probably most famous through Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And what does it say toward the end? My cup overflows. And it's a metaphor for just the love of God, the acceptance of God, knowing that you don't ever have to worry about Him being for you and blessing you. And in this, in this mysterious way, you can drink it and drink it and drink it, and it's always pouring over the brim. That's the cup of blessing. That's not the one that fills him with horror, obviously. What fills him with horror? There's another metaphor in the Old Testament. I want to give you two examples. There's a bunch more, but just here's a, here's a taste. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now what is the metaphor conveying? This cup with this wine, it's a wine you don't want. It's a wine that represents God's feelings toward the wickedness of this earth. How upset he is, the punishment that it richly deserves... All that's in the cup. And God has that cup in His hand and He hands it to whom He wills. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And that's interesting because there are several passages where when it talks about this cup, it doesn't just talk about that it's wrath, that it's anger but what it does to you. It makes you real. It makes you... It's horrifying. It makes you cover your mouth when you look at the prospect of drinking it. Now, obviously, this is tough to hear. And and, uh, I know that when you talk about the wrath of God, 
you know, if, if, if you're too comfortable with hearing about that, that concerns me. But what about if you say, I just, I don't know, I, do, I don't like framing God that way. The God I know, the God I love is a God of love. Okay, what if those are two sides of the same coin? I mean, what, what if we're saying not so much, well, God has these different gears and sometimes He has His... He's in the gear of love. But if he goes into the gear of wrath, that goes off. What if the wrath is a manifestation of love? There's a a professor at Yale Divinity School, a theology professor named Miroslav Volf. And he's Croatian. He's not American-born. And so he has seen ethnic warfare up close. And I want to read you something that he wrote about the wrath of God because he says, Originally, I was no friend of that doctrine. I didn't like that doctrine. And then something happened. Here's what he says. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. And we could all say, Amen. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates... 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages, and that's in italics, my villages and cities uh, were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. That opinion, that deep, deep feeling of God about the sins of His own people is in the cup that He's handing to His Son. And Jesus asks, is there any other way? And the unrecorded answer is, of course, what? No. And it's worth worth it at occasions like this to remember. There are good sides to to the, uh, I mean, um, huge emphasis there's been in the last 20 years of tolerance, of listening to one another, of uh, multiple perspectives on the same topic. There's a lot of great things that flow out of that. But if it's eroding something that the church has always believed, namely that the only way to God the Father is through Jesus Christ the Son, then it's not good. And this is a very important text for that question because God the Son, who is the apple of His Father's eye, is asking Him... If there is some other road to God, can people take that road? If there is some other means for sinners to be right with you, can you let those means suffice? And the answer is no. 
There's no other means. There is a cup. You either drink it on behalf of our people or they'll drink it. But the cup doesn't go away. So, Jesus drinks it. So what does he endure as he's drinking it? And I'm not going to say as much about the physical sufferings. I want to say some. Uh, before he's crucified, here's, a, here's just some snapshots that Mark gives. You don't have to turn there. 1465, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. You know, when the, when the Jewish authorities handed him over to the Roman authorities, he wasn't calmly taken into custody. When the Romans received him, they punched his lights out. 1519, and they were striking his head. I think that's in the perfect tense, meaning over and over. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And the reason that last point is so awful is, is, is that that's after he endured a Roman scourging, which was often fatal. And so after his back and the back of his legs were opened up by 39 blows by this flogging, which was enough to kill a man, when this cloak was put on him, of course it adhered to all the wounds. And so then when it was stripped off him, all the wounds reopen, all the nerve endings light up, and then he goes to the cross. And it, it, it is interesting that, that uh, in the Gospels, when they bring you to the point where the most important thing that ever happened, besides the resurrection, when it happens, it's incredibly understated. I mean, verse fifteen twenty four, and they crucified him. And it doesn't go into super depth. Could we just pause and say that this is when the second person of the Trinity, the radiance of the glory of God incarnate, was stretched out on a Roman cross and they took nails and they went through the meat and the nerve endings of his hands and his feet and then they hoisted it up and it dropped into its spot and he hung there? That's the crucifixion. Has he drunk the cup yet? He's drinking it, but is that the worst of it? Because that's beyond anything we've ever experienced. But when do you know he's drinking the cup that filled him with so much horror? And you really get that in verse 34 of chapter 15. At the ninth hour, so that would be about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the beginning of Psalm 22. Now catch the difference between how Jesus overwhelmingly speaks about God and how he's talking about God here. Even when he's facing drinking the cup and he's overwhelmed, as he speaks to God, he still says what? Abba, Father. But as he's on the cross, does he say, Father, anymore? No. What is that telling us? Is that for the first time from all eternity, there is a breach between the Father and the Son. 
besides all the physical ordeal, which is jaw-dropping, what you're confronted with is a man who geographically is right outside of the city of Jerusalem. That's where he is physically, geographically. Experientially, he is in hell. The only way to be the substitute for people who deserve to go to hell is to go through hell. And not like we talk about go through hell. We go through a hard time, I went through hell. That's not hell. Hell is the wrath of God. He is experiencing hell and cries out. And Mark records and other gospel writers record verse 37 that at the end he he cried out loudly whether that was one of the sayings that you get in the other gospels or whether he just in the agony of it and the pain of it just screamed and then he dies. Now, what should we do with all that if it's at the middle of everything? And let me try to aim this in some different ways. You know, um, I, I know we say this week after week, and I, I want to say this week after week. It's just, it, it's such an amazing thing on Sunday mornings to have both Christians and non-Christians here. And sometimes somebody is processing things and may say, I, I'm not quite sure where I am. But it may be that you're here this morning and you, and you are able to say, I know I'm not a Christian yet. I'm, I'm thinking through it, but I know I'm not a Christian yet. And coming off this, I, I want to say to you something that's, I want to say something dire. And then the best news I know. Here's what's dire. The language of the cup doesn't end with this. You find it almost at the very end of the Bible. Uh, it says in Revelation chapter 14 that for those who, when all is said and done, say, I, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't think I need Jesus. I, I don't think that's best for me. I don't think that I have to have a Savior. I think I'm fine the way I am. Here's what it says. That person, quote, also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented. That's the bad news. And it's, it's, it's not love not to say that. It's love to say that. Jesus said it. And I don't say it with any glee, but that is what the Scriptures say. And it's dire. It is dire. But here's the great thing. The God that we worship is not just this frightening deity who says, look, I'm so powerful I can have a cup of wrath and I can hand it to you and I can make demands of you, so don't mess with me. That is not the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures is the one who himself, in his Son, takes his own cup and drinks it on behalf of his people so they won't ever have to. And it's not just that we're talking about the absence of wrath. Yes, it's that. And if if the gospel was just the absence of wrath, sign me up. You know, if the gospel was, if you believe in Jesus, you won't go to hell and you can die and just deteriorate. I would say, bring on the rot. Let me deteriorate. Don't let me fall into the hands of the living God. But the gospel is so much more than that. The gospel says, let him drink the cup of wrath that you deserve and that I deserve. 
So that you may have what? No cup? No. So that you may have His cup that He richly deserves, who never violated the law and the prophets once, who always loved God and loved people the way He should. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, I I don't even know what to do this. God is so wonderful that you can come to Him with your confusion and with your lack of understanding and your prayer. And I'm not scripting anything for you. I'm not going to say, if you'll pray with me now. But you literally can say something like, I don't even understand how all this works, but if there is a cup of wrath that I deserve, I know I don't want it. And Lord Jesus, if you can drink that on my behalf, drink it. You take my cup that I might have yours. And that would be a wonderful thing to pray. But what, and again, no one can make you do that, and no one knows but God. But what if you did that today? What if your eternity changed today because you knew that that cup I deserved was gone? That would be glorious. But here's the thing. How do I know that it really works? How do I know something actually changes in reality somewhere? Verse 38. Right after Jesus dies, and Matthew and Mark and Luke all want want us to know this. Verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What was the curtain? It was in the tabernacle. And then when they built the permanent building of the temple... It was in the temple. It was the visible, physical manifestation of the separation between God's people and the presence of God. And Matthew and Mark and Luke all want us to know that right when he died, the curtain tore. It's almost like... This analogy in some ways is not good because I'm about to compare the temple and Sauron... So that's probably counterproductive on multiple levels. But think about at the end of the return of the king when Frodo and Sam finally make it into Mount Doom. If you don't know how that movie ends, you're about to find out. (laughs) They make it into Mount Doom, you know, and and Gollum's wearing the ring and he falls into the fire in the the heart of the mountain and he's destroyed, but most importantly, you know, the, the ring of power is destroyed. You know, all the other fellowship. Aragorn and all the rest. They don't know. They they don't even know if they're dead. They haven't seen them. But when they see Sauron's tower fall, then what do they know? It happened. It's, It's the visible manifestation of invisible realities that I can't see. When that curtain tears, what are the gospel writers showing us? Is that's a visible manifestation, it's something that we can't see has actually happened in time and space that the wrath of God has been removed from His people forever. And they can have the cup of blessing forever. Um, But before we close, what about those of us who are here who would say, no, that's what I believe. I profess to be a Christian. I believe He drank the cup for me. We do... And we keep slipping back into acting like there's a curtain. When you you haven't read your Bible for a week, two weeks, hypothetically, 
When you've taken someone's head off, worse yet, when you've done that with a, with a little kid, little child, ideally your own, anger, neglect of God, neglect of His people, neglect of the church, worse, things I don't want to talk about, things I don't want to name from the pulpit. If you're in Christ, does the curtain fly back over when you do those things? The curtain is gone. There is no new curtain. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have access to the Father. There is no cup of wrath. You have the cup of His blessing. And I want to leave you with this thought. Here's how great that cup is. He even drank the cup for how we don't appreciate Him drinking the cup. Because most of the time, I hardly even feel that He did it. And I have very little appreciation for it. And you know what? That's terribly sinful. And you know what? He paid for that too. And I'd have to say that's about the best thing I've ever heard. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for taking that cup that we deserve, we, we thank you. How can we thank you? We cannot thank you except to say, you've done all things well. Thank you for handing us a cup that you deserve. How we long to feast with you. Not just to see you by faith, but to see you with our eyes. How we long to see you, not just by faith, but in your body, with our own eyes. To be with you in heaven, the new earth forever. To verbalize our thanks, as it were, in person, but you are here in person by your Spirit. And so we say thank you for living and dying and rising for us. And we pray in your name. Amen.